What's up, folks? Welcome to episode two of Existential. Today, I'm going to share a conversation with you that I have with my friend Jennifer Kinney. But before I do that, I just want to take a moment to say thank you to all of you who listened to episode one, who rated the podcast, who gave us some feedback with a review, who shared it, who subscribed. So thank you so much. You're the real MVP. You are. If that's you that I'm talking about, you are indeed the real MVP. It's not Kevin Durant's mama. It's you. So thank you so much. Um, This conversation I want to share with you now is awesome. And I think you're really going to love it, especially those of you who have ever asked me the following question. Hey, Corey, what can white people do about racism? I'm glad you asked because the conversation I'm about to have speaks to that. My friend Jennifer Kinney is an activist. She has a podcast called Speaking of Racism, and she is going to share some really, really cool insights with us about how white people can get involved in the deconstruction of racism and white supremacy. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, uh, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Existential Get Your People. This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories, ideas, and experiences as we talk about issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. So I'm here today with my friend, Jennifer Kinney, who is a wife and a mother Uh, She hosts a weekly podcast called Speaking of Racism, as well as a really cool meal that she has called Food for Thought, where she brings people together to have a meal and to have the tough conversations all of us are having on Facebook in person (laughs) sitting around a table. So, Jennifer, thanks for being here. Um, Say whatever you want to say as we get started in this podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. uh, I'm excited to be on your show. It's not often I get interviewed. So this is ah. putting me in the hot seat, so to speak. <laughs> Hopefully it's not too hot. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely want to hear just your story and how you got into what you're into. Your story to me is really interesting and fascinating. The first thing I'd like to know, though, is how you, as a white woman, uh, a white evangelical woman, how you got involved in anti-racism work. Yeah, so that's kind of a long story, but I will try to tighten it up a little for the sake of people listening. Um, My journey has been pretty long, and I've been looking back over the last like 10 to 15 years, kind of wondering what it is that has influenced me and moved me in this direction and kind of taking stock of where I've come from in this. And I would say that my anti-racism journey really took root about three to five years ago. Um, Mm. And it started really with Trayvon Martin So I also write and I was doing freelance writing and I had been paying a lot of attention online and I was digging into that case and starting to ask questions and and look into these cases of uh, predominantly black men, young black children being killed by the police. 
yeah. uh, it just, it kind of started this journey. So my husband and I had purchased a home in Detroit in a predominantly black neighborhood and we had moved here. Trayvon Martin happened. And then we had Michael Brown, Ferguson, all of this stuff going on. And I just started waking up to the fact that we have a big problem in this country. And I went through a lot of lamentation and a lot of learning. I made a lot of mistakes in terms of my perspective on things, how I interjected myself into stuff initially. And a friend of mine invited me to an event called Get Your People. And I didn't know anything about it other than it was an anti-racism event. And it was held by the Detroit Equity Lab here in Detroit. And when I arrived, I was surrounded by just this huge group of white people. And I remember walking in and thinking to myself, like, great, we've got Subarus in the parking <laughs> lot, a bunch of well-meaning white liberals listening to NPR. Like, what is it they're going to teach me? You know, like I was actually kind of pissed off about it. And, um, and then the event got started and there were four panelists, uh, a black woman. Um, I think the other woman was indigenous. And then there were two white people and they explained to us that they had these, uh, they had, uh, let me think of the word. I can't think of it right now. Um, they had, they have like a black group and a white group delegate. So the black delegate went to the white delegate and they said, you need to get your people. We cannot continue to bear this burden and carry this weight and do this work. We need your help. And here's what that looks like. And I started to get it. And I'm like, oh, this is get your people, meaning white people, get your people oh, and call them in and talk to them and start having these dialogues. Up to this point, in all honesty, like I didn't know what to do. I wanted to do something, but I also was aware enough that I didn't want to interject myself into places. I didn't feel qualified. I wanted to hear from um, black indigenous people of color on how to help, what to do, how I can lend support. And at this event, they were just like, you need to get involved and here's how you get involved. And that night I decided my food for thought dinner party that I do next is going to be a get your people type event. So I went home that night. I'm a doer. I did it. And I set it up and I had about 13 people at my house, I want to say within three or four weeks. And the rest is history in wow. a sense. That's an amazing story. So you went to this event, not really knowing exactly what it was, like you just had an idea, but you, you didn't know that it was an event that was encouraging you to basically get your people. Yeah, I didn't realize what get your people meant. You know, I had enough information. I knew there was injustice. I knew there was segregation. I knew there was more to our history than I was taught. And I knew that I had a lot to learn. I did not understand much yet at that point. And I felt held back. And I think that's okay. I think that's necessary because I think there's a point in this where white we'll call them allies. I don't know how you like to refer to this, but where white allies, they're, they know, 
but they don't know enough and they want to help, but they're not sure how they can help and they don't know what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Because the reality is, as white people, like we've been in the majority, everything is built in this country to make us comfortable. And so when we enter this space and go, oh, I don't actually know. And oh, I should be careful. That becomes very uncomfortable for us. And we're not really sure what to do. Right. So I showed up there like any good liberal. And I was like, I'm entitled to hear from people of color on this because they're the experts. And while that was correct in a sense, right, you can see the flaw there. Right. And, and so I learned, and it was funny because when I did this dinner party, I told some friends who I thought would be interested. And one woman said to me, you know, it feels a little bit like a bunch of men getting together to talk about women's issues. And so I said to her, because I had the same thought basically the night before, I said, what gives you the right to sit at the feet of people of color and have them teach you? Mm. And she kind of looked at me and was like, oh, well, when you put it that way, I'm like, right. You know, we're putting a great deal of burden and expectation in even that. And so that was an interesting conversation. She still didn't come. but (laughs) (laughs) Well, I bet that was an interesting conversation. And I bet you have a lot of interesting conversations because as a white woman, I imagine that there aren't that many other people in your circles who are doing this work. Is that, am I making an assumption that's not accurate? Are there, are there lots of white women that you're surrounded with who are also fully engaged in anti-racism work? That's an interesting question. And I'm not sure I have a good answer for that because it's hard to figure out what it looks like to be fully engaged. And so for Mm -hmm. me, because I'm doing this podcast and I spend, we were talking before the show started, you know, some weeks I can spend 30 to 40 hours a week just working on editing, getting things together and doing this. And I'm in a position where I can do that. And I'm fortunate, you know, to be able to do that. I try not to judge people, but Mm. it is tempting at times because I want to be like, Hey, show me your card, show me your credit, (laughs) you know, like, what have you been doing? Um, you know, but I think that might be a bad thing. Um, yeah. But that is an interesting question because I'm interested in, here's, here's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in people doing the deep work within right. themselves to dismantle all of the things that they have absorbed and learned since the beginning of their time on this earth. And so my focus is dismantling internalized white supremacy. And that is lifelong work. And so somebody might have the language that tells me that they get that systemic racism is an issue. Somebody may be able to talk the talk. But what I want to know is, are they doing the deep work? And that is a very challenging thing to even engage white people in. Because a lot of white people who are aware enough they are suspicious of me and my work because I'm a white woman. So it's this catch 22. I'm kind of in this interesting position in that way where I'm like, my sense is you're not doing the internal work and you think that the way you vote makes you not racist, or you think that the thoughts you have or the knowledge you have, or the fact that you watched 13th 
means you're not racist, <laughs> right? But it's really hard in that group to identify and connect with them and and have those conversations. I can only hope they're listening to the podcast or that they'll ask me ask me questions if they're curious. But in the beginning, when I started doing this, I really struggled with who am I speaking to? Like, who's my audience? I don't even know, right? And I don't want to take on the position of an educator because I'm not an educator. And I don't want to take on the position of somebody that I'm not. So I go into these podcasts as myself. The 42-year-old white woman who grew up in predominantly white spaces all of her life, moved to a predominantly black city four years ago, and has been fumbling through and and processing through this journey of anti-racism. And that's what I can bring to the table. That's awesome. Now, what I've always heard about white people that get involved in this work And I've even read it in Brenda Salter McNeil's book, Roadmap to Reconciliation, Mm -hmm. about the catalytic event that happens that causes someone to come off the sidelines and get fully involved. And that's probably black people and white people, to be honest. So did you have an event, something that happened in your life? I mean, I know I know people who adopted black children and then therefore they started seeing the world through the lens of their black children or their black spouse. You, you said you were living in a predominantly black neighborhood. What was the catalyst? Or can you think of something that was like, oh, man, this, and you mentioned Trayvon Martin earlier, this is the thing that now has me fully engaged in this work. Yeah, I would say for me, like Trayvon Martin was step one. Michael Brown was step two. The Ferguson uprising was the big moment for me where I was watching the media, the well-intentioned left-leaning media, who is supposedly, you know, woke, they were pushing a narrative that was not accurate. And when I started to realize and wake up to that and go, okay, when I walk outside my door and I interact with my neighbors and I interact with my friends, I'm having a very different experience than what the media is portraying. So for me, that was kind of the moment where I'm like, I have to learn more and I have to engage more. And then my next big moment was really being released into the work through that Get Your People event. When I got permission and I was actually told that I was needed in a sense. And I was given direction on where I could be used. That was like the, the moment that I kind of shot off and I never looked back. Man. Well, there's, so there's a couple other things that I'm really interested in mm-hmm. because I know there's probably some white people listening to this who maybe want to do more or, or want to get more involved but maybe they're afraid of some of the landmines that you step on, even when you're trying to help. Like, how do you avoid centering whiteness? What do you do with white guilt and your white privilege? And you even referenced it earlier when you talked about when you when you said, I don't know how how I would refer to white allies, because I know there are people who don't like that term. So with all of those types of of landmines and, and places where you can find yourself offending a black person who you're trying to help, what gives you the courage to continue 
in this work and to continue to learn. And I'm sure there's been some bumps and bruises along the way, but you continue to press forward. You know, I would say humility is key there, right? Like just knowing and being okay and understanding that we live in a system that is broken because it was designed that way. Absolutely. And so understanding that and realizing like, I can't have pride in this and I need to set this aside, but really believing in humanity and our connections with one another and the importance of that. So that really motivates me. Um, Believing in people in these connections that I have, you know, since I started the podcast, it was crazy. I was literally like squatting down in my closet. I homeschool children. I've got a dog barking and I'm recording into my phone. So this is kind of <laughs> how it starts, right? Like I'm a doer, my poor engineer husband, like, oh my gosh, he's just like, Jen, do you even know what a podcast is? You know? <laughs> and so I start that way and I go along for about six months on my own. And then I really felt like, wow, what an amazing thing it would be if I could have conversations with my friends on air, you know, like that would be amazing. And I just started connecting with people through Instagram, through Facebook, and, and I discovered this community of people. And as I had these conversations and as I pushed into these things, it, you just, you know, when you have those moments where you touch humanity as it should be as it's meant to be. And it's, uh, it's like this holy sacred moment where you're like, this is what we're meant for. Yes. And, and just being blessed with those experiences time after time after time, you know, like these are hard conversations. And at the same time, in the midst of them, when we see and experience one another's humanity and we take one step forward in this movement and process, like that's, amazing to me. So that's really what fills me and what motivates me and keeps me going. Yeah. So also another thing that I'd love to talk about, I mean, you and I are both people of faith. We both are Christians. Um, The white evangelical has been a very polarizing person, uh, character, if you will, in America these days. I guess technically, by definition, you'd be a white evangelical. Um, How do you reconcile your faith and justice? Because I know that there are lots of Christians, black and white, who consider justice and faith to be two separate issues. Yeah, so for me, I'd say I have a fairly nonconformist experience here, which isn't too surprising given my story here. But for me, I, like my husband and I went through very heavy deconstruction and that seems to be like the phrase du jour. And so I don't mean to sound trite or, or, or abuse it in any way, but we really deconstructed about three years ago from religion. So we are believers in Jesus and followers of Jesus and identify as Christian, right? I tend not to use the term as much, not to be clever or (laughs) cute or anything, but just because I feel like follower of Jesus really captures it more. Um, Yes. And it's interesting because I don't think it's accidental that as we deconstructed from the institutional church, 
that I began to also deconstruct because in that process, right? Like for me, I learned so much about how tradition and culture is what informed my faith and religion versus the other way around. And so as I deconstructed religion and culture and and started to learn how much tradition influences and impacts and informs, I realized that in history as well. So when I started learning that history is not what we've been taught in, you know, like your average American public school, that there's more to the story. And, And then starting to learn about the creation of race in the early colonial days and the intention behind that and the impact of that. Like, for me, it's just this whole massive picture started to sort of open up in front of me in a sense. And so I had left the traditional church. I had left evangelicalism on some level. And I just, I felt very free to follow Jesus and to also go where I was feeling led in this work. And I mean, I don't know how super spiritual you want to get, but the story about how I got involved in this is just like really profoundly spiritual for me. So on my podcast, I don't really talk about faith much because I don't come at it from that perspective, but that is 100% what fuels me and what guides me. And so it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to be able to just speak and be a part of this process and not, you know, lead from faith and yet have faith be the thing that is really moving and motivating me. I find it interesting. You said that your deconstruction of your faith was a part of you going into the type of social work that you're doing. And you even said that you don't use the term Christian that often, and you're not trying to be clever by doing it. Mm-hmm. I've I talked to so many people that that's true of, and I find that really interesting. Like I'm, I'm wondering what it is about the deconstruction of, for, for all of us that, that I've had this conversation with of American Christianity and how that seems to draw us all closer to our neighbor, mm. draws us closer to people on the margins. It draws us closer to the LBGTQ community. Right. And I find it so fascinating that it's that the very people who our faith should draw us closer to the institutions of faith tend to draw us further away from. Oh, yeah. And I'm and I hear you saying that I hear you saying that my faith being deconstructed is what helped me to see all of the people who I couldn't see before. Yeah, absolutely. And just questioning so many things because for, for so long, you just accept certain things because they're told to you. And, and when you start to realize that so much of that is a design of consumerism and, and the church industrial complex, and I'm not, ripping on churches. Like I think that there are some amazing communities and it's, you know, like to each their own. But for me, stepping away from that, you know, it's like you begin to open your mind to so many things. 
if your identity is so tied to a belief that breaking from that belief breaks from your identity, that's a scary thing for people, whether we acknowledge it psychologically or not. For me, I was already in this place where so much of that was just torn away. And I remember when I first started going through the deconstruction process, I was very scared. I was afraid of it. You know, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know about this. This is a bit crazy. And now it's like the thing I've been thinking uh, the past few days is like, you can't unknow what you know. And it's just so amazingly true. It's like now that I see certain things, it's so clear. And I wonder, how is it I was asleep for so long? Or how is it I didn't see this this way? And, And you just, it's because it becomes such a part of your identity. And the question becomes, what do you lose when you start to shift your identity? So Hmm. I am not a psychologist, but that fascinates me, you know, that entire process. It is fascinating to think about that process of going from a person who is afraid to go beyond the doctrines that they've been taught to a person who is afraid to stay within the confines of doctrines because they can be so rigid and so restrictive and they don't allow you to go out to the people who need you to go out to them. Yeah. And doctrine becomes your God, right? Yes. absolutely. And it becomes your God, even though the doctrine may be completely flawed. And that's the amazing thing to me is how much we rest in doctrine. Yes. Because we want to be right and we want to have it figured out. And now I understand that as just like total folly. Like, how is it we think we can understand God and have God figured out, you know? Yes, absolutely. So, so you, have, you have Christian friends. I also have Christian friends. And some of the pushback that I have gotten over the years has been about race baiting and um, again, people saying the cliche things like we should just focus on Jesus. If, if we stop talking about racism, it'll go away. What kinds of things have your friends or maybe not your friends or family or people on social media, what kinds of things have you run into that have resisted your work as a Christian who is uh, doing anti-racism work? That is an interesting question because I haven't really led as a Christian doing anti-racism work. Mm. And I'm not sure if that is uh, good or bad or a positive or a negative. I think it benefits me in some way. But I do remember, because I really heavily got into this work on public spaces as well after I deconstructed. And the church that we went to prior to this was pretty liberal by a lot of standards to begin with. Okay. So the concept and idea of social justice and these things, that was not foreign. And I wasn't in a leader leadership position either. So I think for those who are in leadership positions, there's a whole other level that's, you know, like pushed onto you. Um, and then we go to um, a church now that's very, very justice focused. I mean, it's like all it's about. But it's not that they're focused on justice. They're focused on Jesus, right? Mm, And I find when you focus on Jesus, right, like it's justice. And that's just where I'm kind of like, I don't understand where like this, the who, the Baptist, who was it that put out 
the statement against social. John, it was John MacArthur and some other. And they're reformed. That's people. a reformed denomination. Yes. Yeah, yes. I just, I, yes. I just, oh, yeah, that breaks my brain. But when I did start dipping my toe into conversations with people who identify as Christians, I remember just being like, what? is this? What is going on? Why is there so much resistance coming from evangelicals? And I was shocked by it. I was absolutely shocked. But then I started to see a pattern because I'm one of those people who will sit and observe for a while and just take it in. I'll engage, but it takes me a while to, to see themes sometimes. And two of the most difficult groups to engage with are white feminists and white evangelicals. Those have been two of the most difficult groups. I understand the white feminism more now, and I'm understanding the white evangelicals as well. Um, But I'm getting ready to dive into that and read Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. Hmm. But that, I mean, yeah, that was really troubling to me in the beginning because I'm like, even though I don't go to your churches and even though I'm not a part of this institutional process, I still see other Christians as like brothers and sisters. And I was so just shocked and bothered by it when I first started seeing it. And now I expect it, you know, because I realize regardless of religion, white supremacy is white supremacy. And it is at the root of our history. It's at the root of our nation and it impacts everything. So everything mirrors it, not mirrors it. What's the word? Everything highlights it. So whether it's a church or it's a government organization or it's a school or it's a neighborhood or it's a social club or like it just exudes this reality. It absolutely does. And it's you're absolutely right that it is so pervasive. It's everywhere. And to think that religious institutions would be immune to it is just silly. Schools aren't immune. No, no space is immune to being affected by white, white supremacy. That is really so well said. Thank you so much for saying that. I want to ask you one last thing before we, we wrap. Um, I, want to, I want to ask you, what is it that you would say to the white man, woman, boy or girl who is listening to this and maybe has some questions about what they can do, how they can get started in deconstructing white supremacy, and after speaking to them, maybe give us an example of what it means to get your people. That's a good question. You know, usually what I do is I try to gauge where is somebody at? Are you just at the beginning of this and curious? I usually recommend certain podcasts or books, depending. And so there's a podcast called Seeing White, and it's seen on radio. And it's the series called Seeing White. I think that that is a really good one for entry level because it's about a half an hour per episode. It's really well done. They get into critical race theory and history, and they do it in a way that's very engaging. So that would be one. The other, a lot of times I recommend people read White Fragility by Dr. Robin D'Angelo or watch clips from her. I don't love, and and I don't know if I should say this, um, I don't like to really recommend books written by white people on the topic. 
And so I feel torn on that. It's fair. But she does such a good job of breaking some things down. And, and even when I read it, I'd been doing this work for a long time. I felt very like, oh, I get it. Yeah, this is a great way to put it. I've been experiencing it, but I didn't have words for it. And then I can identify that. So I think that is a really helpful book to read. And then if people want to dig into history more, there are some really good books and resources for that. But I think it's important for people to commit to doing their own internal work first. And that can happen in a lot of ways. So if you have a friend who is in anti-racism work, partner up with them, ask them for advice, resources, information, and then you can kind of start figuring out what your next steps are and how you want to get more involved and to what degree. Um, I think for me, something that has been really huge is learning history. So reading stamped from the beginning. There's also this book called Birth of a White Nation by Dr. Jacqueline Batalora. And she, it's, it's small and it's an easy breakdown, but it gets into some pre, like the colonial history of when race was created in the United States and for what purpose. And, oh, yeah. you know, just oh, yeah. starting to see those things and understand those things brings such a new ability to, I think, also then engage the work and just to understand, like, we're human beings. We live in a system that was created and functions precisely how it was created to function. And the more we realize that, I think the less shame we have, the less fragility we have, and the more ability we have to be intentional and engage the work. As far as get your people, um, what would it look like to get my people? That can mean a number of things. So one of our mutual friends, Joanna, she actually hosts um, video events and she will host a movie watching event. And maybe she'll gather people and they'll all watch 13th and then have a discussion after. Oh, cool. So, and and she actually does this in like her community center, which is like amazing to me. Yeah. Other people though, you could just say, hey, I want to have a few friends over and we're going to watch 13th or another movie. And then there are book discussions, right? Like you could host a book discussion in a book club on stamped from the beginning. I'm doing that. You could host dinner parties. You could actually create space to invite the discussion and dialogue. That is so great. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Yeah. It's like you can engage online. And when you have a family member who says something like being very intentional and respectful and talking to them, calling them in. So there's calling out and there's calling in, right? I am a huge fan of calling in. And one of the things that I don't like to see is performative allyship. And you can see it from a mile away because somebody says something on, you know, the internet, and then you get somebody who jumps in and starts berating them and telling them they're a racist and doing all of this stuff. And it's like, they look good. They've done their performance. We all clap. And the person goes away, never engaging in discussions about racism again, and holding the same beliefs that they held. So, so performative allyship to the trash, like that, that is a bunch of nonsense. So we have to carefully, thoughtfully engage people online, in DMs, in private conversations, and, and be intentional. But that requires work and 
We don't always love work, you know. Uh, So that would be another way you can do that. Having conversations just within your family is important. Children, how are we raising our children? For me, I homeschool my kids. And one of the things I committed to last year was teaching them history that was like not colonized, which is not so easy to do. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, it's not. So here are my eight-year-olds, just to tell you how crazy I am. My eight-year-olds, you know, sitting around the dining table, and I'm like, today's word is colonizer. <laughs> Beat after me. You know, and like teaching them about colonization and the evils of it, right? But then also just taking them through his, taking them through history without that perspective, you know, starting in the middle ages and, and learning about these kingdoms in Africa and kingdoms in Asia and kingdoms all over the world. Wow. So that I think is another really important thing is how do we engage our children in this, get them thinking about it, teach them well so that we can change the future generations. So those are just some ideas. Oh, yeah. That's so great. That's so great. Thank you for sharing those ideas. They're amazing. Each one of them I could talk to you about for another hour. <laughs> I'm just sitting here like, oh, my gosh, it's so good. So great. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of this with us. Again, people can follow up with you on your podcast. It's a weekly podcast. And it, again, it's called Speaking of Racism. Yeah. Um, and we'll include a link in the show notes. but. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Other than thank you for having me on. And I've enjoyed this conversation tremendously. Um, No, I think we're good. Well, great. Thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll be talking to you again soon. Man, I love the stuff that Jennifer shared with us. I love that story. I love like just, wow. I just love to hear people who don't have a dog in the fight get involved in the fight because it's the right thing to do. And that's what Jennifer showed us. So Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I am just so, so grateful for you. Listen, you can stay in touch with Jennifer through by going to the show notes. Uh, we have her handles for social media, as well as a link to her podcast. Uh, I would love it if you would follow us on Instagram. Uh, the handle is at existential podcast. I would love it if you'd connect with me on Facebook, Corey Evan Leak on Facebook. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, please, please do so because I don't want you to miss an episode. And if you wouldn't mind, leave a review, rate the podcast, tell us what you think. It helps us in so many ways. Of course, I'd also like to thank Comfort Fit once again for the music. This song is called Sorry. But most importantly, I just want to thank you so much for listening. And I want to thank you for helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time.